question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Today on the show, we'll be hearing from leading sociologist Loic Wacon in part two of our series on urban marginality, the urban precariat, and the relationship between hollowed out inner city economies and the rise of the penal state under neoliberalism. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Loic Wakant is professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's a researcher as well at the European Center of Sociology and Political Science in Paris. And his research focuses on comparative urban marginality, uh, the urban precariat, uh, with a focus on uh, what he calls the hyper-ghetto um, in Chicago and, and Paris, the racialized urban periphery um, of Paris and the inner city of Chicago. Um, so two major um, research sites um, and areas that, that, that uh, Louis Quacon has looked at. His research also looks at broader issues of urban poverty, ethno-racial domination, the penal state, and social theory. Um, he is author of many books and articles, including Urban Outcasts, A Comparative Sociology of Advanced Marginality, Prisons of Poverty, and Punishing the Poor, The Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity. And this is part two of um, a two-part series um, with uh, Louis Wacant giving a uh, talk. This is dating back to November 1st, 2012. It was a public lecture organized by the University of British Columbia's Lew Institute for Global Studies and the UBC Department of Geography. And his lecture is entitled The Production and Penalization of the Precariat in the Neoliberal Age. And as I mentioned, this is part two. And you can check out part one as a podcast at www.thecityfm.org. Um, and you can download that. Um, but we're picking up um, essentially um, sort of in the second half of his lecture. And you should, without hearing the first half, um, be uh, more than able to uh, take a lot out of this. So uh, without any further ado, this is uh, urban sociologist Louis Wacant here on The City. So what I'm going to do now, so I so punitive containment I'll give you a sense of that. Now I'm, I'm going to I'm going to uh, take you to so I'm going to switch to over and give you a sort of a algebraic formula 
for cutting through urban outcast. Um, um, so in urban outcast, so we start, you know, I the three shocks. I saw the ghetto, I was like shocked. Then the shock of Bill Wilson, and the shock of this moral panic that impels me to go in and to understand, try to understand what is going on on the south side of Chicago. And what I discovered is that the ghetto collapsed and became the hyper-ghetto. And then when I go to Western Europe, so that's thesis number one. Second thesis is in the working class territories of Western Europe, far from evolving in the direction of the ghetto, are actually moving in the direction opposite to the ghetto. But then when I say that, you're thinking, but what do you mean by that? Indeed. How can you say it is a ghetto or it is not a ghetto, it is moving in that direction if you haven't constructed a robust concept of what a ghetto is? So, so long as you stay within the folk notion that changes with the winds of academics and journalists and policymakers, you can't even begin to, uh, to provide an answer to that question because you don't have a, a robust uh, notion that you can measure empirical reality against. You don't have a, a concrete, uh, stable, ideal type against which you can say this neighborhood is evolving in the, towards the pattern of the ghetto or is evolving away from the pattern of the ghetto. So let me characterize then what I'm going to do. So this is, this is you know, and these, these two together, that's, the, that's the, um, the, the, the thesis of refuting the thesis of convergence. So let me then quickly tell you what makes a ghetto. The bonus. <laughs> Usually it's a whole talk, but we're going to get the cliff notes in one minute. A ghetto is not, is not a segregated neighborhood. A ghetto is not a poor neighborhood. It's not a neighborhood with bad housing. It's not a neighborhood with a bad reputation. It's not a neighborhood with lots of bad things like violence and vice and what have you. This is how the term has been used, not only by ordinary everyday, in everyday life, but also sadly increasingly by scholars. A ghetto is a contraption that uses space to effect ethno-racial closure. It's a means of ethno-racial closure whereby a dominant group defined along criteria of honor corrals and limits the life options of a subordinate group by using space. And essentially, a ghetto has four components. So here is the algebraic formula, uh, social algebra of a ghetto. It has four, four elements that makes the structure of the ghetto. First element, you have to have stigma. You only have a ghetto emerges when you have a stigmatized population with whom intimate contact is a problem. It defiles you if you have intimate contact. So you want to keep that population away. But at the same time, you, for a variety of reasons that I can't go into, but I'll be happy to clarify that in the discussion, that, that population is coming into the city. Indeed, you need that population in the city. In the case of Jews in Renaissance Europe, in 16th century Italy, where the term ghetto was first used, the rulers of the city needed Jews to be present to access uh, trade in luxury goods, trade in military wares, financial services, medical services, which only Jews as a traveling diaspora, uh, uh, which didn't fall under the strictures of, of the Catholic religion about the use of money, could provide. So you wanted to attract the Jews in your city. But there was the belief that Jews were polluted and polluting. They were carriers of disease, in particular there was a belief that carriers of syphilis and they were carriers of apostasy. You would renounce your religion if you came into contact with Jews, especially intimate contact. Even seeing the naked body of a Jewish person who was believed in, in, the, in the Christian city of, of Renaissance Europe would, 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 would make you lose your religion. So you needed those, <laughs> those 
tainted bodies to be in the city, but you needed to keep them at a distance. This is a complicated operation. <laughs> so you have your stigma. So what you're going to do, you're going to apply constraints. You're going to apply constraints on that population to force that population to reside and to organize its affairs in its own separate territory. And so this is spatial confinement. So you use constraints to impose spatial confinement on a stigmatized population. And in that separate space, that population will develop its own parallel well, its own parallel set of institutions. You have institutional parallelism. When you have these four elements, you have the building blocks of the ghetto. Why does the ghetto emerge? What are the functions of the ghetto? And now I'm going to switch, switch to the example of African Americans during the 40s era, roughly the northern industrial cities of the United States between 1915 and 1965. You notice that I gave dates. I didn't say always. Uh, African Americans were segregated until World War I in the northern cities. They were ghettoized. They became ghettoized. Why? Because World War I both stopped the flow of migrants from, East, from Europe created a booming industrial economy, so you needed labor power in the factories. Where are you going to get the labor power? From the agrarian economy of the South, where which blacks wants to escape anyway because of the brutality of that regime of domination. So this is the great black migration to the northern industrial cities. Why? Because now you want their labor power. But it was the belief that blacks are tainted and tainting because of the historic association with slavery, that they were congenitally inferior, and that there was no question of mixing. It was called the, it's the it was known, known as the notion of social equality. It's very nice euphemism. Social equality had to be don't go to bed with this person. Don't mix in an in intimate sphere. So how, how do you do that? Well, African Americans are welcome. Indeed, the, 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 big, uh, the big corporations of Chicago, the industrial powers of Chicago, went down south, sent recruiters to start the great black migration that, that brought you know, 2.5 million blacks uh, during the three, the, the three decades after World War I to the industrial north. But this is a stigmatized group that's going to be constrained to reside in its separate district. And that will develop a black city within the white. This is a beautifully described in the book by Drake and Tatum, one of the great classics of social science, which you should follow if you haven't already. Black Metropolis, a fabulous one of the you should definitely read it. You're not in your sociology, but in, in urban, you know, having worked hard to get University of Chicago to reprint the book after it went out of print, I'm, I'm there to help with the sales. But also, <laughs> but also it, it's, it's just a fabulous book. And it describes what? It describes how blacks develop their own parallel city, complete with the division of labor, with all inferior versions of the white institutions from which they were barred, creating this parallel, this parallel well, and fulfilling two functions. So the ghetto has two functions. Economic extraction, you're extracting financial services, access to long distance trade and so on so on for Jews in the, in the Christian city of Renaissance Europe, or you're, you're extracting labor power when you need it during the, bo the bloom of the industrial economy at the century point. Which means, of course, that once you're gonna, and, but, but what is the second function? Economic social ostracization. Now, now when you when you know what a ghetto is, um, you kind of know the story of its collapse, and you you now you have you have the building blocks for understanding what happens to to the beautiful uh, black metropolis of the mid-century, how it becomes this corridor 
of, of Desolation, which is right across the street from the gym. The, the boxing gym was yeah. right, right here. Uh, there used to be guys fighting in this bigger store there. <laughs> this, is, this is the street, this is 61st Street uh, by the Chicago campus. Now it's completely, it's been entirely raised. You can't even recognize anything. But what's interesting is that these are abandoned, burned down stores from the Martin Luther King killing riots of 1968. This is 20 years later. It's been left completely in exactly this state. In fact, there was a canopy of a Rexall drugstore about two blocks down that was still collapsing exactly the way that. And I found a picture from 68 that showed that it collapsed this way and it's been left by this completely abandoned, this abandoned territory. Um, so now we understand how the ghetto will, how will we will move from ghetto to hyper ghetto. The get what happens is that the ghetto collapses. It collapses, why? Three reasons. First, there's a move from the industrial economy that requires massive unskilled labor, centered on the city with factories right inside of the city perimeter, to a decentralized, globalized system of production that moves from goods production to services and essentially undercuts the need for the black labor assembled in the ghetto and therefore eliminates the function of economic, economic extraction of the ghetto. What is a hyper-ghetto? It's a ghetto that has lost its function of economic extraction and therefore has lost the means to sustain its parallel institutions. And so it becomes, and, and so that's the first reason. Second reason why the ghetto collapses is that with, as a reaction to the great black migration coming into the city, there's the great white migration to the suburbs. That is, whites migrate by the millions to recreate the spatial and social distance with a group deemed undesirable. And out of this shift, what we have, we have a double demographic and political shift where the electoral center of gravity of the country migrates from the city to the suburb, which devalorizes the black vote, devalorizes the city, and precipitates the crisis that uh, will be known as the fiscal crisis of the cities of the 1970s, which, which is really a class and racial crisis that takes on a fiscal form. And this, of course, helps uh, uh, accelerate the collapse of the ghetto, but also it creates the vacancies, it creates the vacant land in which the black middle class will migrate from the historic core of the perimeter of the black city to the neighborhoods left vacant by the white middle class and white working class that has moved out. And so it means that the middle class grows, but it doesn't grow in the historic territory of the black belt. It grows in new black middle class segregated, but not ghettoized, segregated neighborhoods, but where now the black middle class and the black lower class have achieved social and spatial separation. And they no longer share the same institutions. They are no longer in a shared space where they participate in the shared institutions under the, and, and, and so, so the hyper-ghetto emerges as this space that is doubly segregated. It's the remnants of the historic ghetto, doubly segregated by race and class. Fulfilling no economic function, having lost its buffering capacity, uh, and where the communal institutions that used to be run by blacks for blacks to provide a protective buffer are now, in fact, replaced by the social control institutions of the state. The school reduced to a custodial institution, social welfare, and prison fare. And here, let me spend just one minute on. Uh, on the, 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 this is the topic of the, the book, The Two Faces of the Ghetto. What we, when, we, when we see this institution, we only see one facet. 
we see this as an instrument of ethno-racial domination and subordination, but that's the standpoint of the dominant. From the standpoint of the subordinate, the ghetto is a protective device. It's a shield. It's a way of having a space of your own. It's a space within which Jews in Renaissance Europe or African-Americans in the 40s metropolis could experience reciprocity and equality and dignity, could therefore construct their own institutions, accrue their own social capital, cultural capital, symbolic capital, and use the ghetto as a means of challenging their ethno-racial exclusion. So the ghetto itself was a feeder of the civil rights movement and the black insurrection. That is the third factor that leads to the collapse of the ghetto. So you put together the economic transformation, the, the demographic uh, migration transformation with its political implication, and the black resistance and mobilization against continued ghettoization, and you have the principles of the collapse of the ghetto. But so now we have understood two things, what the ghetto is, and that, what, that the structure that we are now looking at is a very different animal. In particular, it has lost its protective, its buffering capacity. A ghetto is a two-sided animal that you can represent as a sword. It's a sword in the hand of the dominant group, Christians in Renaissance Europe, whites in the 40s United States. But it's also a shield for the subordinate category. It gives them their own universe, their protection. It's a shield for Jews in the Christian city. It's a shield, shield for blacks in the uh, 40s white city. No longer. The ghetto is now a space of danger, a space of naked competition, a space that is thoroughly penetrated by the social control agencies of the state, um, and no longer provides. So we are really dealing with completely different animals. So here what we have, same articulation of symbolic categories, the black-white division, but a different social space. Here we have a social space that integrates all black classes and puts them in direct relationship, where the black bourgeoisie grows by providing direct services to black lower-class customers inside of the restricted perimeter of the ghetto. Then when we move to the hyper-ghetto, we have same symbolic structure, but a different social space and a different physical space. So in this articulation of, of uh, symbolic, social, and, and, and geographic space. Now here we have the black bourgeoisie is physically separated. There's still a black-white division. Black middle-class neighbors are just as segregated. But now the black middle-class grows by, what? by serving the states and providing the service personnel, in particular for the social control agencies of the states, <coughs> and now in a sense as, as feeds uh, through penalization. So now I'm going to cl close in the interest of time and having discussion, so I'm uh, not going to have time. But I, I do want to say very quickly, so when, so when we go to Western Europe, I'm just going just to give you the formula, why I call what happens in Western Europe anti-ghetto. Because what happens in Western Europe is you have the traditional working class territories become pauperized, become stigmatized, and the state changes the way that it intervenes and acts in those neighborhoods, and actually participates into locking them as state-intensive places where there's a lot of social agencies, where there's a lot of housing agencies, where that becomes one of the ways in which the, the, the everyday life is organized, which is, in a sense, the opposite of the social state withdrawing from the U.S. hyper and replacing it by the penal state. But what is interesting, so, so what you have is a pauperized, stigmatized territory, and I call them anti-ghettos, why? To counter this silly use of the term ghetto as a, as a rhetorical device to shock people, but also to point out that there's actually a completely different dynamic that takes these neighbors away from the parent of the ghetto. And, and let, me, let me point out um, 
let me point out quickly the five elements, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you in three minutes. I say you burn them. It's important because you're going to understand quickly why. Oh. So if a neighborhood is becoming ghettoized, it means that the population in that neighborhood is becoming more and more ethnically homogeneous, because because a ghetto re results in in the most abstracted, compressed, and illegal characterization, you can characterize a ghetto like this. This is a ghetto. The double assignation of a category to a territory. Note, I said, the double assignation. That is, all members of the group C, all blacks, will reside in a territory, in this particular territory. But also, listen to this, important listen. This territory is assigned to blacks. Because you could assign all blacks to this territory, and this territory being mixed. In which case, blacks, let's take an X, in which case this group X will not develop its own, will not have a monopoly over collective representations, organizations, and so on and so forth, cultural activities, and so on and so forth. So it's not going to develop a shared language. It's not going to, but if you have the double assignation of category and territory, you send all your Xs to this particular X neighborhood, and only X, you assign that territory to the X. Now you get, on the way to ghettoization. Why? Because what, then what you have is you have ethnic, growing ethnic homogeneity. What do we see throughout Western Europe when we survey the neighborhoods of relegation of the urban periphery? These neighborhoods are becoming their ethnic, they're becoming their ethnic heterogeneity is increasing. It's the same heterogeneity, or ethnic homogeneity is decreasing. They're becoming more and more like a salad bowl, an ethnic salad bowl. Now, if there is ghettoization, it means that you also have ethnic concentration, that is that all of the members of a particular group, more and more members of a particular group, live in neighborhoods in which this group predominates. What, what are we seeing? We are seeing, on the contrary, ethnic dispersion uh, throughout Western Europe. I just wrote a piece on France about that with a colleague statistician, Jean-Louis Parquechon at, at INEM. Then, third element, if, if a neighborhood or a population is being ghettoized, what, should, what, what, what are you going to have? You're going to have growing organizational density because all members of that particular category find themselves in this neighborhood that is where they find only co-ethnics. So you have rising organizational density. What do we see in Western Europe in those neighborhoods? Organizational density is going down the tubes very rapidly. Indeed, the organizations that survive are organizations that are sponsored by the state very largely. Fourthly, if it's true that there is ghettoization going on, it means that this boundary is impassable. It's, it's more and more difficult for members of the category to cross the boundary. What do we observe about neighborhoods of relegation in Western Europe? Enormous mobility. Indeed, the mobility in the uh, so-called sensitive zones of France is higher than the average residential mobility of the French family. In, over, the, over the decade of the 1990s, 63% uh, of all residents of the, uh, of the sensitive neighborhoods left the neighborhood, most of, we, most of whom left to go outside of the neighborhood of this type. So there's growing mobility across the boundary. And lastly, if you have ghettoization, you have growing homogeneity, growing concentration, organizational density, impassibility of the boundary, which means that what? That you are going to create a shared identity. You're going to have a collective language. All your specialists in cultural production are going to be in the neighborhood. They're going to create a shared language and identity. What do we observe in Western Europe? No shared identity emerging out of this neighborhood. Thus, on all five of these dimensions, the working class territories of Western Europe are, are moving away from the pattern of the ghetto, not towards the pattern of the ghetto. Thus, the characterization of that as anti-ghetto is an apt one. Now, 
I'm going to skip the, the parts on the bureaucratic field and take you to the, take, ah, we're skipping all of this, too bad. Why penalization? I'm going to give you the, the very brief characterization of why, why penalization. I could have gone the route of actually showing you the structural and functional similarities between the ghetto as an ethno-racial contraption that uses space to contain a group, and the prison. Because, note, oh, I erased, but the four building blocks of the ghetto, stigma, constraints, spatial confinement, institutional parallelism, also characterize the prison. The prison is an institution in which people are stigmatized by a judicial decision. Their, their, their citizenship is abridged. Under the force of the police, they are, they are brought into a specific space in which they will develop their parallel institutions, contraband economy and sexual wars and so on, to survive the pains of imprisonment. And indeed, the structural similarity is, is also points to the functional similarity. When the prison was invented in the 16th century, they were also workhouses. They were instruments to teach the word ethic to the derelict fractions of the working class. But now let's zoom and see why penalization will be the recipe of choice for, um, to deal with uh, advanced marginality. You start with your uh, economic deregulation. Economic deregulation uh, creates a lot of social insecurity, part-time job, combination of high employment, part-time employment, insecure employment, precarious employment, short job contracts, no medical coverage, and so on and so forth, with, with a tremendous insecurity of life, which creates disorders, family disorders, neighborhood disorders, and so on and so forth, creates great social anxiety, so there's objective social insecurity in the transmission of material circumstances, but also subjective social insecurity, the fear of falling. A remarkable statistic in France, 65% of the French fear that they will become homeless. You know, which is very forbidding, because in a society where probably one-tenth of one percent has really an objective chance of being homeless, you know, the vast majority of the population believe that they could be caught on this cycle of downward mobility where they lose their job, if they lose their job, they lose their home, their wife will leave them, they'll find themselves <coughs> on the streets and they'll fall through the cracks. Okay? So this fear of downward mobility a cloudy future. There's also a transmission crisis with the acceleration, the generalization of the school mode of class reproduction with increased school competition. Now everybody needs not only to finish secondary school but to go to college and to go to college and even get a degree from a good college. And even if you get your degree, you're not sure that you'll be able to find a job. And if you find a job even with a degree from the University of British Columbia, it's not sure these jobs will last. Or it's not sure that it will give you the income that allows you to purchase the package of goods that, you know, that will signify your middle class status. Ooh, a lot of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> so this is subjective. This is common for a lot of middle class families who are, feel relatively secure in their own standing. They fear that they won't be able to transmit their status to their children. So you have this great wave of social anxiety coursing through the social body. And of course, you know, with the blurring of the established lines of class and ethnicity and so on this ad. Now, traditionally, how did you, how did you use to deal with social insecurity, you roll out your social welfare state. Yeah. This is the, this, the Pivot and Cloward story. But now if you did that, what would people do? They would seek shelter under the protective wing of the penal state, the, the welfare state, and they would say, sayonara, we don't want those family jobs. <laughs> and so your deregulation would come dead in its tracks. So in order to be able to impose insecure wage work as the normal horizon of employment for the unskilled fractions of the post-industrial working class, you must shift from protective welfare to some variant of warfare. You know, there's an invariance of them, I think they've been well studied by 
by Jamie in his book, Work Fair States. But essentially, everywhere, the, what used to be a protective cave against the sanction of the labor market becomes a springboard to throw you into the labor market. And this does what? It redoubles the social insecurity because it only anchors the poverty, the insecurity of income, the, the, the inability to provide for, you know, for, 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 for your family, and so the growing gap between what you can consume and what the model you know, citizen consumes, and so on and so forth. And this then creates a deficit of this disorder is brewing, is threatening to go out of the neighborhoods of relegation. This creates a deficit of legitimacy for the political elites. Um, both among the middle and upper classes, because there's all these brewing disorders, all the French banlieue are rioting again, but also among the working class, which feels that it's no longer protected by the state. And so how do, how do uh, state elites respond to this deficit of legitimacy? By rolling out the penal state. And rolling out the penal state essentially solves two problems. The arrow, the, I, I, I'm not very skilled at doing this, so it took me 29 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this arrow here, the, the one going from penal activation from social insecurity, that's what I call rolling out the penal state to resolve your Karl Polanyi problem. The Karl Polanyi problem is the following thing. Karl Polanyi shows in his book, The Great Transformation, that when you roll out the commodity forum, when you bring the market to labor, to land, and to money, what it does is it erodes social relations, it destabilizes society, the society, it creates disorder, and the society reacts. It will react by what he calls a counter-movement. And this is creating unions, creating regulating labor, and so on and so forth. My argument is that here, the counter-movement came from within the bureaucratic field, from within the state, by shifting from the left to the right hand of the state. And the rolling out of penalization serves to contain the disorders created by commodification at the bottom. So that resolves your Kalapurani problem. And the second problem is what I call is the arrow that goes from penal activation to deficit of legitimacy. This is what I call the Karl Schmidt problem. <laughs> the Karl Schmidt problem from the uh, German political science uh, theorist Karl Schmidt, who wrote a famous book called Der Begriff des Politiken, des Politischen, the concept of the political is that the politics has to do with drawing a boundary between us and them, the enemy and the people. What better policy to draw? And this is how you signal political power. This is how, for me, you stage the sovereignty of the state, by designating an enemy and show that you are merciless against the enemy. What better enemy than the street veterans, than the low-level criminals, than the, than the welfare cheaters, than essentially you know, than, than the derelict fractions of the working class that are violating moral rules on the welfare side and violating criminal rules on the, on the, on the, on the penal side. And so you use penal, penal policy as a way of reasserting the authority of the state. And of course, if you throw in race or immigration, and if you uh, compress and compact that in space, you have an even more noxious policy, which is that, if, of course, all of this, note that all of this is going on in the same neighborhood. If you add space and stir, you will see that all these cultural processes and institutional forces converge and coalesce in the same districts of relegation at the bottom of the urban order. Jobless and job precarity, that's in those neighborhoods. Workfare disciplining, that's in those neighborhoods. Prison fare, intensive policing, prosecution, imprisonment, that's in this neighborhood. And I would add housing policies that are refurbishing housing by state-led gentrification and the destruction of housing estates by the state, that's also going on in this neighborhood. So what we mistake often to be neighborhood effects are in fact effects of differentiated state structures and selective 
state policies inspired in space. And so here, this takes us out. You've already seen this. Now you can understand how, why penalization was tracked the precariat. Because this is, if you go back to the origins of the prison, you can show in the late 16th century, you can show this, that at the very, from the very beginning, the, invention, the prison was invented not to deal with crime, but to deal with urban marginality. In the late 18th century in Northern Europe, it was known as the problem of the sturdy beggar. The sturdy beggar are what? Beggars coming from the countryside with the feudal mode of production collapsing, coming into the cities without yet a position, a function in the emerging capitalist economy because, well, factory work hadn't been invented. And finding themselves begging on the streets and making the life intolerable for the emerging uh, urban bourgeoisie of the day. And the prison was invented at the same time as poor relief. You can see here now the connection, late 16th century, the invention of poor relief and the invention of the penal prison, the left hand and the right hand of the state. Both of them trained on who? Those at the bottom of the material order of class, those at the bottom of the order of honor and dishonor, those who are, in a sense, poor outsiders. Uh, oh, I have an insider and outsider, a mixed and honor mixed. I did this last night, so. <laughs> but essentially, and this is. This has been true throughout the history of, of the penal institution. It has always struck down right at the poor and at the designer. And, and this is why it's such a, in a sense, so now we can go back and uh, see the further agenda, but we're, we're, reaching, the, we're reaching the conclusion um, and we're reaching why, you know, uh, how it was necessary to grasp the rise of advanced marginality to make sense of the double punitive term and the stunning return of the prison in contemporary society. Neighbors of relegation, those districts wherein the marginal and the stigmatized fractions of the post-structural working class concentrate. These neighborhoods are the prime targets and they are the proving ground upon which the neoliberal state is concretely being assembled, tried, and tested. And as I mentioned, three key policies are rolled out in these territories where the precariat coalesces. Housing policies, welfare, workfare policies, and criminal justice policies. So by studying these neighbors, we, we can study the making of the neoliberal state. We ought to see them as conduits for elucidating the politics of marginality, for taking seriously the way space binds class, ethnicity, and the state. We should uh, look at them as sites where the production and the penalization of the precariat are going together. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. The Study and Go Abroad Fair is proud to support CITR's Fundrat from February 26th to March 8th. The fair is a great opportunity for anyone considering studying, volunteering, working, or traveling abroad. Exhibitors will include universities from around the world and student travel organizations. The Study and Go Abroad Fair happens Tuesday, March 5th from 3pm to 7pm in the East Ballroom of the Vancouver Convention Centre. All visitors will also be entered in a grand draw with prizes including a trip on Air Canada, a volunteer trip in Nicaragua or Nepal, and an iPad. CITR will also be doing a live broadcast from the fair with interviews, demos, and more. For more information, go to studyandgoabroad.com.
Are you a senior undergrad or graduate student wanting to supercharge your professional development and meet the right people in the ocean sciences? Then register now for Power Up, networking and training on February 27th, sponsored by Ocean Networks Canada. For more information, go to regonline.ca slash powerupONC. And you're here on the city on CATR 101.9 FM, CATR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and also as a podcast at the city at the the cityfm.org and uh, you've been hearing from leading urban sociologist Loïc Wacant on his talk entitled The Production and Penalization of the Precariat in the Neoliberal Age and we're going to go into the question and answer portion of his talk. Enter one of the one of the important nuances that I want to be in the model is that penalization takes a multiplicity of form. And it doesn't take necessarily the form of putting throwing people behind bars. Indeed, one of the ways in which my so some of my European colleagues have said, oh, this is terrific, it's all but but this is for the US. The US has 740 inmates per 100,000 uh, residents. Uh, Western Europe has, you know, between 60 and 150. So we're really talking about completely different animals as well. Except that I tell them, first, in Western Europe also we have seen a doubling or a tripling of the incarceration rate. Not a quintupling or a sextupling, I think you have said. But we have seen a very significant rise, which on the scale of this society, in a sense, is, is very, very, very important. But more importantly, in Western Europe, penalization takes the form, it, takes, it doesn't take the form of incarceration, it takes the form of policiarization. So one of the one of the important differences uh, is that there's an American route to its penalization, that is essentially uh, we shut down social welfare and we massively increase prison fare. And when we use the penal state, we use the back end of the well, we use all elements, the police, the courts, and the prison, but we have no limitation on the back end. So if you look at the penal state as a sort of a chain with the front end and the back end. In Western Europe, for a variety of reasons that have to do with the texture of citizenship, with the importance of human rights, with the autonomy of the courts, with the bureaucratic field, and so on and so forth, it is, it's the front end and not the back end that has, that has essentially done the brunt of penalization. So that, let me give you the example of France. In the last decade, the number of people in France behind bars has increased pretty significantly. We are at record level since the early 20th century. Uh, it has increased by about a third to reach 68,000 inmates. But, but so you say, well, a third of increase. What's a third of increase compared to a tripling? Uh, no, this is, this is very moderate. Yes, but during that same decade, the number of people arrested by the police and taken to a police station overnight for a procedure known as garde à vue, where you're kept under the eye of the police, which because we are waiting to see whether there's going to be charges pressed against you. And typically, the next morning, we realize that there are no charges, and you are released, and there are no records. You get no, no apology, no, no nothing. <laughs> the number of people who went to Garda Vue, it was revealed, tripled 
in 10 years to reach the astronomical figure of 1 million gallons a year. Now, this is, this is stupendous because if you compare 67,000 people behind bars, 30,000 in flow coming in, 30,000, but you're talking about a million. Now, it's not a million people because some people, precisely, are, go through Garde la Vue two or three or four or five or ten times during the year. And precisely, where are these Garde la Vue going on? Now, we don't have, unfortunately, of course, actually, this, this figure was a big controversy when it was revealed because the police didn't want that figure to be revealed. You would think, oh, it would look, make you look good. You would all accept that it's, a, you know, it's so outlandish. Yeah. But also, everybody knows where these arrests are going on. They are going on in the neighborhoods of relegation, in the banlieue of the urban periphery. And who are the targets? Younger men, uh, working class, because the first selector is class and not ethnicity. Because if you are a young uh, Arab kid in a well-to-do neighborhood, the police will not come and ask you for your identity paper and find there's a reason to bring you to the police station. So, so we must first differentiate the different kinds of penalization and, 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 and in, in particular, and then we must uh, not forget that now in, the, in, the, in, in, in prison fare, there's, not, there's, there's the police, there's the courts, there's the jail, which is the entry point of the system where people are still held, waiting to be uh, disposed of judicially, that is sentenced or found innocent and so on. Then there's prison, where people who are sentenced, who have been found guilty, are sent to serve their time. But there's also probation before you go to jail. And there's also parole after you've come out of prison. And there's a whole series of programs. And there also, I, I count under prison fare also uh, the representations of criminals. Like I, 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 I roll under my expanded notion of prison fare, for instance, all the cop shows, all the, all the TV programs, the you know, uh, 911, uh, uh, cops, uh, um, you know, the, the whole the cultural industry around the loathing of criminals and the representation of criminals. There's, there's, a, there's a carceral talk show on, 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 a, on a cable TV in the United States called Sheriff Higgy. Sheriff Hickey is a sheriff in the, in the county of North Carolina that has put a, 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 essentially a television studio in the admission um, room of his jail and where he gets, you know, he, he, he convinces people who have been arrested and are waiting to be tried or waiting to be released, you know, to actually come on the program. And people call and they come to vituperate. They come to vituperate the inmates who insult them on TV. This is, so this is part because. And so, and also the discourses of justification of these practices, the discourse of, so under prison fair, I put the categories, the programs, the institutions, but also the representations that justify the rolling out of the penal state, but the rolling out only against certain categories. And you note that I never said the word war on crime, so give me a chance to say this is the most inane expression I've ever heard, yeah. because there never was a war, first of all, these are not enemies. I mean, the second, the second scholars and many of my colleagues, unfortunately, say, and because of the war on crime, you know, and they are they are sort of arrayed against the phenomenon. They think they're critics of the phenomenon, they, but they say because of the, but the war on crime never exists. First of all, it's not a war. If you say it's a war, you're participating into the rhetoric that creates an enemy out of a citizen. These are citizens of the different countries. They have rights. They are defended by the courts. They have constitutional, you know, uh, protections. Uh, it is not the army operating, it is the police. And the police is put under supervision of justice and so on and so forth. And more important, it's not a war. It's not an enemy, they're not invading a territory. There's not people living in their own neighborhoods. What are you talking about? It's a war. Secondly, it's never been a war. If it, if it had been a war, it was never a war of crime. Because it only targeted lower class street infractions. It never targeted 
upper class corporate violations. Indeed, my esteemed colleague who lived many years in Canada and Toronto, John Hagen, who is the, and this is not a crazy French, you know, left-wing sociologist. This is the president of the American Society for Criminology, John Hagen, uh, you know, who has just published a book uh, entitled, this is not a topic, I, I, I would love for that title before him. <laughs> His book is called, it's just, it was just released, and I think it just won a prize by the Lawrence Society Association. His book is called, Who are the Criminals? And it's a comparison of the policy, uh, penal policy, criminal policy in the US between 1930, Roosevelt, and essentially the beginning, the, the, the end of Carter, 1980, and 1980 to, to today. And he shows that essentially these two eras, in which in the second era, there was a growing penalization, harsh treatment of lower class crime, and a massive depenalization of corporate upper class crime. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the crisis of 2000 of the stock market and the crisis of 2008 were aided and abetted by these policies of penalization. So penalization has a variety of forms. Um, we ought to look at all of them, not get obnubilated by, by the incarceration rate. For some, for some purposes, the incarceration rate is a good indicator, and it's a good way to compare and to look at evolution. For others, it's a very bad indicator. It misleads us to think that penalization is going, not going on when more subtle or different forms of penalization are going on. And, and I think in, 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 a, in, a, in Washington, D.C., you know, which, for those who don't know, is, this, is, this is a district that has its own jail and prison system um, that has the highest incarceration rate in the whole country. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the reasons why you say a lot of people are not you know, in prison is in fact because they have been removed. And so you're only seeing those who are left in the neighborhood, about 80% of whom are under criminal justice supervision. 80% of men ages 18 to, to 50 are under criminal justice supervision. Um, and so, and in, in, the, in the neighborhoods of the hydro ghetto, essentially if I took you to the west side of Chicago, that's exactly what is happening. In fact, I have a slide somewhere that shows that more than on, in the neighborhood called North Landale, which I described in chapter four of Urban Outcast, um, um, more than half of the men eight, ages 18 to 50 are not in the neighborhood, they're serving time in downstate. And 80% of the men remaining in the neighborhood are under criminal justice supervision. You know, and then, and then, and then sociologists come around and say, this is a disorganized neighborhood. You know, do we just say, well, look, look, look who's disorganizing it. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, look who's undermining the family, who's undermining the local economy, who's undermining social relations. Look, look the penal state is on every corner. There's an American geographer who computed that some corners in the poorest neighborhood in America, she calls them million dollar corner. Because if you count the number of people who came from that census tract and who are now serving time at an average, national average of $28,000 a year, in fact, millions of dollars are being spent for the former residents of these neighborhoods, only they are not there, and it's not to their benefit. Okay, let's take a couple of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a short answer. <laughs> you have to ask for one. Yeah, okay. I'm from Switzerland, and uh, lately, uh, uh, <laughs> lately in the media, uh, I've heard uh, lots of politicians speaking about an increase, or at least perceived increase, of violence and crime. And uh, there has been many measures that have been proposed, like uh, to increase the number of police uh, officers and also the number of places in the prisons. And these measures have been approved even by the most left-hand uh, politicians, at least in the media, like socialists. 
And another measure that has been proposed by Bolshim was to use the prisoners to make them work in order to provide benefit for the state. And also, uh, and that's his word, he said that would be an answer uh, to the um, desindustrialization of Europe. Do you think this could be a measure that could potentially rise or not? Okay, let me start with the putting prisoners to work. This is an old cookie dream of the right. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's, these two, there's these two great fantasies. On the left, you have the activists of the... And you know also I didn't say prison industrial complex. <laughs> because prison industrial complex is, is, a, is, a, is a demonology. It's an activist, it's a demonic myth that there is this alliance between capital and, <laughs> and politicians and, and correctional officials and they want to keep growing the system because they... They, because firms invest and make profits of a prison, people go and exploit prison labor. At the height of the so-called exploitation of prison labor by private firms in the United States around 2000, when there were over two, two million people behind bars, there was about 2,000 inmates employed by, by private corporations. And, and you know, there's all these stories that are repeated endlessly. If, you know, uh, Microsoft used inmates in a facility near Seattle to wrap uh, Windows 2000. And at one time, United Airlines had people in, in a prison in, in Cleveland who were taking your reservations when you were booking a flight <laughs> to Vancouver. And, or, and here, there's a factory that lost. You know, there's a wood factory that lost because in a nearby facility. But the reality is that inmates are dreadfully idle. Prison work doesn't exist. You know, 18% of inmates work in, to make the facility function. And there's also another 20% who work in so-called prison industry. But that only exists because they're subsidized. They're not, a, they're not, they're not an economically viable proposition. It's make do work. We pretend that you work. We, we pretend to pay you. And we pay the cost for making you work to say that we put you to work. Prison work, putting prisoner to work in, 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 in liberal, democratic society is an unworkable proposition for a multiplicity of reasons. First, it's not feasible. You need, in order to have, what would you make them do? They're unskilled, they're difficult to handle, they're undisciplined, so it's not exactly like the best labor force in the world. <laughs> so you're gonna make them do unskilled work, like textile. But first, you know, well, it means you, you have to have Infrastructure, so you have to have electricity, you have to have water. If it's going to be done on a, on a serious scale, the infrastructure is not there. Who's going to invest in infrastructure? Well, the state doesn't have the money to invest in infrastructure. Secondly, as soon as there's a there's a security incident, like uh, three times daily in, typical, in a typical American prison, there's a count to see are all the inmates there. It's very routine that you do a count. There's always an inmate that wasn't seen; he was behind his bunk or whatever. The count is missed. You close down everything. You stop all activities. Stop all movement. Stop activities. How are you going to run a factory now? I need to deliver my jeans or my, my computers or my X or Y. And you mean to tell me that now this facility is going to remain closed for, for eight hours or eight days because there's been a riot? So, you know, thirdly, what, what are you, who, who are you going to sell to? Typically, prisons are in out of the way rural areas, far from markets, so you're adding transportation costs. And, 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 and lastly, um, so it would only be workable if you could exploit inmates it says, at such a great, greater level than the people outside, that then it would be a workable proposition. But you know the deregulated labor outside. So people point out the fact that my friends of the prison industrial complex mythology, they point out people behind bars, they have very low salaries on which they can't survive. So do low wage workers outside. <laughs> you know, they don't have vacation. So do 80% of service workers in America. They don't have health care. Well, they actually, they do have health care. 
and, and, and you know, so it's, it's simply not a workable proposition unless you could super exploit people, into which they simply not doable because of the legal strictures around them, the considerations of constitutional rights or, or, or human rights issues. So it's just um, so the cookie dream of the right is to turn. There was a there was a, a think tank down in Texas that used to produce report after report in the 1980s and 90s, revving up the engine that we we have two million inmates. That's a captive labor force. If we put them to work on minimum wage, we can generate eight million eight billion dollars of the blah, 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 blah. And he called his report "Factories Behind Bars." <laughs> you know, and it went nowhere. It went nowhere at the high level. When he wrote this. The labor market in Texas was unemployment down to one and a half percent, not even frictional. You know? and, and here's the reason why it's never going to work, because even if you found something that you could make inmates do and so on and so forth, and you, you could, then, then the second your labor market goes down, the, goes in the tank outside, and there's a lot of unemployed people outside, how are you justifying providing jobs inside to criminals? How are you telling me now that this person who is a worthy citizen so can't, can't feed his kids, can't find a job, because this job is in this functioning, because, because if the jobs inside are competitive, it means, well, then if they have a market, it means they would have a market outside. So these jobs could be, and so the second that your labor market goes down, then immediately it's an unworkable proposition for any state to actually have a functioning economy in like Mars. Now, here's the, the cookie dream of the left my friends from the prison industrial complex, rah, 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 you know, <laughs> is they believe that inmate exploitation is already going on. So the right is this dream that they can only around the corner. If you let us keep going, if you let us develop it, it will be a workable proposition. You know, around the corner, there's a precipice. And then, and, then, and then the people on the left think, and then the two are in alliance because they all keep talking about the exploitation of inmate labor as something that they want to do or something that they want to prevent. It's, you know, it's a figment of the collective imagination. And, it, so, and, and if there's one country where it's there, it'll happen, I can guarantee you it's <laughs> <laughs> Now, on the, on the reason why, uh, on the connection, so uh, you may have noticed that I didn't talk much about crime. For a simple reason, there's no connection in any country, in any epoch, between trends in crime and trends in incarceration. The best case to demonstrate this is the United States. In the great, during the great carceral takeoff, between 1975 and, and, and 2000, the incarceration rate in the United States is multiplied by four, and the, and the crime rate is stagnant, oscillating by a variation of plus or minus 10%, and then after 1993, plummeting, and yet incarceration keeps going through the roof. Of course, and you have the direct comparison. Canada and the United States have roughly the same crime rate outside of homicide. So if you take out homicide, but homicide, you know, if you have 20,000 homicides, it's only about one person who killed each person who died. Probably even less, because some killers kill multiple people. <laughs> but so, if, if, if homicide is the only difference. Homicide, you know, and, 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 and killing with guns is really the only difference in the crime pattern of Canada and the US. Contrary to what most people think, in fact, there is more low-level crime in Canada. There is more sexual crime in Canada per capita than in the United States. There are more burglaries in, in Canada than there are in the United States, and there are more the theft or run-of-the-mill theft in Canada than there are you know, in the United States. Yet Canada incarcerates 105 residents per 100,000. The U.S. one seventh. So, so where is the connection between the level of crime and the level of incarceration? There's none, none, none whatsoever. And, and so. And the, the difficulty, of course, is that the, the discipline of criminology is essentially founded on this duo, 
of crime and punishment, on the sort of founding doxic belief, never examined, that punishment is a response to crime. But when you do a meaningful social history of punishment and the invention of the prison, as I did, and you go back to the late 16th century, the great work of Peter Spierenberg and others, then you realize that the prison was never invented to treat crime. It was invented to treat vagrants, to treat urban marginality. And then you realize, but you know what? Late 16th century and the late 20th century look pretty much, pretty much like one another. <laughs> And this is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Uh, we've just run out of time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we've got Flex Your Head coming up next live here on CITR at 6 p.m. And if you're listening syndicated on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! at 11 a.m. coming up next. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, if you like what you heard or missed a portion of it, uh, check out the website. It's thecityfm.org. And you can also check uh, the program out on Facebook um, by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions, on Twitter uh, by searching the handle The City underscore FM. And again, you can tune in live uh, Tuesdays, 5 p.m. on CITR and syndicated on CJSF at 10 a.m. on Fridays. Thank you again for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back next week with more Critical Urban Discussions. Born in Nairobi, Kenya, David Nandi Othiambo moved to Winnipeg in 1977 before eventually settling in Vancouver, where he has written three novels entitled Disadbanded Nation, Kiplegat's Chance, and The Reverend's Apprentice. Disadbanded Nation tells the story of a local jazz singer hiding from immigration officials in a flophouse on Vancouver's east side. Othiambo has called this work, in part, an impressionistic sketch of the disparity between Vancouver's west and east side. This PSA was brought to you in support of Black History Month on CITR 101.9 FM.